Canaan. It's all about Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationships. Where beginners are welcome. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And it's okay to not be okay. Great to see all of you. Welcome to our 11 a.m. service. And those of you that are late sleepers, this was a gift to you, right? All right. Uh, if you're joining us online, great to have you with us as well. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of 2 Timothy. That's where we're going to be in the New Testament. And we begin a new series today. And, um, you know, lately we have talked a little bit about Vision 2025. And Really, that, what that's all about is what does it look like if we are truly a revived people? We are men and women, you know, boys and girls, saved by the blood of Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, living transformed lives, bringing that transformation via the gospel to others. What does that look like? What all could we accomplish? Well, the question there is what does it look like for us to be revived? And so this series is about nine different disciplines or nine different things that we as individual members of the body of Christ must do and will do if we're truly filled with the Spirit of God, living our life for the glory of God. These are nine things we're going to look at. So today we're starting that off by looking at learn, looking at the importance of studying and being immersed in the Word of God. So we're calling this series Cadence. You know, when I was in the Army, it was one of my favorite things about being in the Army was calling cadence for the, the unit marching. And so what we would do is, you know, you'd have as many as uh, 120 soldiers in one formation. That was a company. And so it would all be, you know, in rank and file. And for, uh, in order for us to be able to move as a unit, whether it was, you know, at the, just a quick time or at the double time where we're running together, it was critical that we all be in the same step. Because if I'm, if I'm trying to run right behind a guy, but my left foot's going forward, the same time his left foot's going back, we're gonna trip and we're gonna fall. And I've seen it happen. It's pretty comical. Because if one falls, it's like, it's like domino effects. It's like the whole formation behind just falls and trips over and it's just, it is bad. So it's so important that we stay in step with the cadence caller. And that's the whole purpose of the cadence caller. Any of you, how many of you served in the military? Just raise your hand if you served. Just a couple of us, all right. Did any of you, did any of you were the cadence callers? Did y'all ever call cadence? All right, yeah. So it'd be kind of fun one day to share stories on what cadences we called. And, you know, some of them definitely couldn't repeat in church, uh, but that's just the way the military goes. But it was kept us in step. Well, in a very similar way, right? We're talking about moving forward as a family of God, the church family. It's very important for us to move as the family, to stay in step, not only with each other, but with the Spirit of God. I know Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Oh, let me get there here. There we go. It says, I say then, walk by the Spirit. You can almost say, stay in step with the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So that's what this series is about. Is what does it look like? How do we stay in step with the Spirit? And what is your role as an individual member, participant, contributor to the body of Christ? And so that's, that's what this series is about. So today we're looking specifically at the big thought is that a revived person has a hunger and a yearning for learning the Word of God. That's what we're talking about today. So let's look just real briefly here at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17, if you've been around Scripture memory, uh, this is more likely one of those passages you've memorized, but uh, let's just read it together. So I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray together. Lord, that is our prayer that you would just give us a hunger, a yearning for your word today, maybe greater than has been. Um, God, maybe for the first time for some, just a hunger and thirst to, to learn more about who you are, your purposes, your ways, your character. And God, I just pray that you would stretch us today through your word. You would train us. You would correct us, rebuke us. That, God, you would equip us to do these good works you have prepared for us. So, Lord, I just pray beyond all of that, that you would just fill us with your spirit afresh and anew. And, Lord, even if there's some listening online today or some here in this room with me right now that aren't in that relationship with you yet, that, God, because of your gospel, which you revealed to us through your word, Lord, they may be saved. They may come into that relationship with you. So, Father, we just want to lay this time at your feet. Pray that you use it for your purpose and your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. So here's kind of the approach we're going to take today. We kind of looked at the big thought about the hunger and the yearning to learn the Word of God. So we're going to start with some pretty fundamental questions, right? So um, if you've been around church life, you've probably heard some of this in the beginning. Maybe you haven't. I know for some of this stuff, as, as foundational as it is, there's some things I didn't learn until I was like, I've been a believer for a while. In, like, in seminary even, some of these terms and some of these concepts. So the goal today is, is, to, is really twofold. I want you to, to get a hunger and a yearning for the Word of God, but I want you to understand how precious it is that we even have the Word of God, to value, because I am so convinced, no matter how on fire we can be for the Lord, there's, there's so many times we just take this right here for granted. We, we just, we're casual that we have this. This is such, this is one of the greatest, other than the gift of Christ, the gift of the Spirit and His church, this is the greatest gift we have. This is invaluable to have the Word of God. To be able to open this, to be able to read and interact with the creator of the universe, that in itself is mind-boggling. So my prayer is today as we go through how we got the Bible, just briefly, it's a little academic at first, but how we got the Bible and the, the, the way that the Lord orchestrated his whole process, it's just incredible that we have this. But I also wanted to increase your trust in the Word of God, to increase your hunger and yearning for the Word of God. So let's just look at some things together. So let's kind of start here a little more, more broadly, and let's ask the question, what is the Bible? You know, sometimes we just take that for granted. We just think, you know, hey, we got this Bible's got a bunch of different books and letters in it. So, but what is the Bible specifically? Again, starting pretty foundational, but it's always good to come back to these foundations. Um, so first, let's look at, it's a collection of 66 books, right? It's not one, one long book. It's 66 books, actually 66 manuscripts and documents that were compiled together, 39 Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. We also learn that um, the word testament means covenant. So the Old Testament really is old covenant. So it's all about how did God relate to his people in the old covenant through the, through the law of Moses. Where new covenant is what we're under. That's how we relate to God through the person of Jesus Christ. So it's written, this is a key difference. Well, it goes from Genesis to Revelation. 
but it's written by over 40 different authors. This is what makes the Bible so unique as compared to other religious works. Written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years. Let's just compare that with two other well-accepted world religion source books, right? So you have the Bible versus the Quran versus the Book of Mormon. So just look at the difference here. The Bible written over 1,500-year time span, which means over, over 150 generations that saw, that came and went, that lived under the time of the Bible's writings. Versus the Quran was written over a period of 22 years, and the Book of Mormon was written in less than 10 years. All right? The geographic span. The Bible impacts and covers three continents. The Bible, some of it happens down in Africa. You remember? Where, where did God's people end up in slavery and Moses leads them out of Egypt? That was in Africa. The, the Middle East, which is Asia. And then parts of Europe, like modern-day Turkey, on up into Greece, Rome, Italy. So the Bible impacts three continents, really the three continents of its day. Whereas the Quran just impacts the Middle East, and the, the Book of Mormon only takes place in North America. So much more limited in their scope and span. But look at the number of authors. This is a huge one. The Bible over 40 different authors, which means they would write as much as 1,500 years apart from each other, but they never wavered in their agreement with one another. You see the same theme, the same motifs, the same life lessons, they even build upon each other, they reference each other, but it's seamless. Over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. Now, we could do an experiment, right? If I said, if I sat up here and I did dictation, remember some of you were in school, the teacher did dictation, she would, like say a sentence, you had to write a sentence. How many of you ever got a perfect score every single time in that? No, probably not. And if you compared each other's stuff to with each other, it would all be jacked up, right? So it's incredible how God superintended this that over 1,500 years, 40 authors write this seamlessly. Whereas in the Quran, just one author, one person, no one to rebuff, no one to check, no one to, there's no accountability with that. Same with the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith. No accountability there. Interesting. And then the number of sections there, just another tidbit of information, but just the vastness of the scriptures. Which leads us to this issue. There's so many religious writings out there. How can we know what's true? Well, enter this phrase, this word, the canon. That's, that's not misspelled. That is spelled correctly. It's not the, the canon you fire with two ends in the middle. This is the word canon. Um, from the Greek word kanon. And it literally means a measuring or a, a reed or a measuring rod. It's the, it's the standard of truth, the standard of measurement. So for the, for the Bible, the canon refers that the Bible is the measuring rod of all truth. In other words, whenever you and I hear any kind of truth claim, whether it's through some politician, which you hear a lot of truth claims that aren't true, right, from politicians. Uh, you know, truth claims or, you know, worldview. Uh, if you're in, if in college, in philosophy class, you'll hear different truth claims that are made. Our goal, our role as believers is to always measure that truth claim against the Word of God, the canon, to see if it, whether or not it's really true. This is our source, our measuring rod of truth. So, canon refers to the standard to which the biblical writings themselves must conform. So, how do we get the Bible? 
Interesting. Of course, God didn't give it all at once. It was progressive revelation written, you know, one book at a time. So, you know, the, the New Testament wasn't delivered already compiled and done, right? Peter, Peter writes 1 Peter. He writes 2 Peter. You know, the Apostle John, he writes the Gospel of John. Then years later, he writes 1 John. Then after that, he writes 2 John. Shortly after that, he writes 3 John. A lot of Johns in the Bible, right? But then he writes Revelation at the end of his life. Well, these were individual letters and books that would have been trans, you know, trans, transmitted, you know, carried as messengers and delivered to churches all over the place. They would have made copies of them. So all these different letters and different books were kind of in circulation. So it came a point when the early church said, Lord, we know, just like with the Old Testament, you desire that there's a, a New Testament, a new covenant. It's compiled together. So they began a process to pray and to seek the Lord on what books and letters and gospels that existed were supposed to be part of the Word of God. And so they, they had three tests, three tests by which you discern which of these books belong in the New Testament. And so canonicity here refers to the church's recognition of the authority of inspired writings. So big word, canonicity, a little academic, I know. But here's the three tests. The three tests of canonicity applied to by the early church leaders on which books are supposed to be part of the New Testament. Because did you know, there are over 140 gospels that were written. You have like the gospel of Thomas. Anybody heard of that? There's a gospel of Mary Magdalene. Why aren't those in our Bible? Well, for many reasons. But first and foremost, they fail at least one of these three tests that we're about to look at. Test number one, was it written or supervised by an apostle? Had to have apostolic authority or affirmation before it was considered to be part of the Word of God. Secondly, how widely distributed was it? This shows how readily the church had already embraced this work as part of God's Word. Like for example, you have the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was found in parts of Africa and also parts of Europe, you know, as early as 150 AD, which shows how widely distributed, which means it was already widely embraced by the church as the authoritative Word of God. And then third, was it written in accord with previous revelation? Meaning, does it agree? This is where you get the problem with some of these other Gospels, you know, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Judas. Why anybody want to wear the, read the Gospel of Judas Iscariot? It's beyond me. But it's out there, right? So they had theological error. There was, there was contradictions in these. They didn't mesh with those other accepted and recognized works of the Word of God. So that's how our early church leaders discerned by God which ones belonged in the New Testament. So interesting. So God superintending this process. Let's get a little more nitty-gritty. So how then was the Bible written from God's point of view? You know, we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, which we just did, it was inspired by God. NIV, I love how it reads, all scripture is what? God breathed. That's actually the literal Greek, theonoustos, the breath of God, breathed out by God. So the scripture is God breathed. And, and Peter, in 2 Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were moved along or carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we're talking about here is this, what we call in theological terms, inspiration. What does it mean that the Bible is inspired by God? What does that mean? Have you ever used that word inspired? You know, you might go to 
the art museum. You might look at, you know, a Rembrandt. Say, wow, he was inspired. Or, you know, we hear a song that just really resonates with our heart. And that, that all, whoever wrote that song, they were inspired. Is that the same kind of inspired that these apostles were who wrote Scripture? Probably not on the same level. Same concept, but not on the same level. When we're talking about the Word of God being inspired. Here's a good definition. It means that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. So in other words, it's not like that God possessed you know, Martin and all of a sudden Martin went into a trance and started writing scripture and then he snapped out of it. He's like, whoa, what just happened there? It's not the way it works here, right? It's that God worked through the Apostle Paul, through his character, through his experiences, through his, his writing style. He, he, he was superintending the process by which the Word of God came. But just for, just to be thorough, let's talk about, there are four different views, at least four different views of inspiration that exist. And the first is kind of a weird one. It's called neo-orthodoxy, all right, neo-orthodoxy. And here it talks about how the Bible gives witness to the Word. And this, this came out as a response to classical liberalism. When we talk about liberalism in the Bible, liberalism means that they don't believe the Bible is inspired by God. If you're, a, if you're a, a liberal Christian, you don't believe the Bible's inspired by God. You believe it's got some cool stories, some good ideas, but it's not trustworthy or authoritative, and it surely is not inerrant if, if, to follow the liberal line of thinking. Well, neo-orthodoxy came about in the middle 1900s, especially by a guy named Karl Barth. And what he was looking to do, he wanted to push against this liberalism. They said the Bible was the Word of God, that God had inspired it, but what they meant by these statements is a little different from what we as Southern Baptists mean. We'll get to that here in a second. But they denied that the Bible was the Word of God in, in an objective sense. They said the Bible was at most a collection of merely human documents. But they said that God uses these human documents to create an encounter with the reader so that the Bible becomes the Word of God as we read it. Reading the Bible, which is full of factual error, sparks that encounter. So obviously, that's not exactly where we land. That's neo-orthodoxy. Second is mechanical dictation. That's the silly example I used a minute ago when God possesses someone just to write stuff out and then all of a sudden they snap out of it and go, whoa, what just happened? Did I fall asleep? Did I have a seizure? No, that's, that's not what we believe. Third, this is the limited inspiration. Only some of the Bible is inspired. Now, what would you see as an immediate problem with that? Which part? And who says which part's inspired and which part's not inspired? Well, it becomes a, a moving target, doesn't it? So we see this like as recently as the 1980s when they had this Jesus seminar. And the purpose of the Jesus seminar was they, they gathered, you know, theologians and people and scholars from all over the world, different walks of life, to, to examine the Bible to determine which parts of the Bible is history and which parts were not. And so kind of where they ended up was... They examined, the, like for the four Gospels, they examined the New Testament four Gospels, and they said any part where they're supernatural or miraculous, that's made up. That's, that didn't happen, so we're going to eject that. And so they ended up with a much shorter, <laughs> much shorter version of the four Gospels. It only had physical actions of Jesus. So like when it says Jesus traveled from Capernaum to Jerusalem, yeah, they left that in there. But when it said Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, no, nah, they, they, they clipped that out. 
because they held to a limited inspiration view. Which leads us to the fourth view, and this is actually, you know, my personal view and the view of, of not only Southern Baptists, but most, evan- most conservative evangelicals, is verbal plenary theory, which simply means that every single word is inspired by God. Every word. So, this has implications for us. Implications. So, what are the implications? If God truly did inspire, if God breathed out every word as he superintended the 40 plus authors of scripture, what is that, how does that impact us? I mean, you and I, we read the Bible very differently if we believe that every word's inspired versus if we believed it was only limitedly inspired, right? I mean, it radically changes how we approach the word of God. So what does it mean for us? First, it means the Bible's trustworthy. If it is breathed out by God, we can trust every word that says. If every word is from God, then every word is true. Amen? And if every word is true, then I can bank my life and my future, my direction, my hopes, my purpose on every word it says. That's trustworthiness. We completely trust the word of God. And that also means that when I may have a certain opinion about something, and I look in the word of God, and God clearly states that my opinion is wrong, that my opinion is contrary to what his word says, then I've got a decision to make, don't I? I either repent, which means I cast aside my opinion that's not true, and I embrace the truth from God's word. And we should be doing that all the time, every day. And that should never end, right? Because let's be honest. How many of you have been wrong about something this week? Just raise your hand. Some of you aren't raising your hand. You got an issue there, <laughs> right? But we, we, our opinions are flawed, right? I mean, we, we're right about a lot of things, but there's sometimes we're just not all the way there because we're sinners, and that affects our minds as well. So trust what the Word of God says. Secondly, the Bible is authoritative, authoritative. Now, what do we mean by that? A good definition of authority. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or to disobey the word from Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. It's a direct connection there, that God has delegated his authority to his word. And therefore, for us to disobey the word of God is to disobey God himself. And on the positive, for us to obey the word of God is to obey and honor God himself. That's the issue of authority. So, having laid that foundation, that you can trust the Word of God, that God has superintended the whole process of compiling the Word of God, preserving the Word of God, it's incredible to think of how God has preserved this for us over the centuries. People have died for us to have this Bible in our language. It's just incredible, the superintendency, the sovereignty, the providence of God in preserving, compiling His Word. So, how do we go about learn. That's what this is about. How do we go about learning the Word of God? So now we're going to go to real practical, and some of you, this might be very informative. How do some different ways we learn the Word of God? Back in Navigators, in college days, there was a ministry called Navigators, a great disciple-making ministry for college students. This is their approach. I've never forgotten it. Still stick to it. Five things we can do to learn the Word of God. Everybody just hold up your hand. I know this is kind of cheesy, but it's one of those silly things that helps us remember. We can hear the Word, read the Word, study the Word, memorize the Word, and meditate on the Word. 
So that's how we can get a grip on the Word of God. So let's just briefly unpack these practically. Hearing the Word of God. Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. There's a lot of ways we can hear the Word of God. You're doing it now. You're doing it when you listen to podcasts and sermons online. You can actually get your Bible app. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, and there's like every version on there thinkable, and probably several on there you didn't even know existed, right? Well, every one of them also has an audio function. You just hit play, and you just, just listen to the Word of God being read to you. It's incredible. We are so spoiled at all of the resources we have at our fingertips today. So just turn to your neighbor and say, you are spoiled rotten. Go ahead. Spoiled rotten. So many ways to hear the word. But are we? Are you exposing yourself to the word? Secondly, read the word of God. You know, we, we try to give you on our website as many different reading plans as we can to, to fit whatever kind of reading process you want to go through. Some of you, are, you want to tackle reading the whole Bible in a year or less. We've got those. Some of you want to space it out, maybe take two, three years. We've got those. Some of you just want to tackle the New Testament in a year. We've got those. Some of you just want to read certain sections of Scripture. We've got plans on the website so that you can tackle reading the Word of God. We've got to be reading the Word of God. That's the intake. God speaks to us through his word, so it's important that we read the word. Apostle John says in Revelation 1, says, blessed is the one who reads and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. And yet John's specifically talking about Revelation, but it's also applicable to the entirety of the Bible. All right, number three, I study the word of God. Study. Now here we're going to go take a little more time to get a little more practical. This is where a lot of you may be, um, and you're kind of stuck or you don't really know how to tackle this thing. You can sit down and read it, but how do you really dig into the meaning? How do you dig into application? We're going to talk about some ideas here, because I want to make this practical. Acts chapter 17 mentions this group of people in a town called Berea. And Paul had just preached the gospel there and was preaching them, unpacking things from the Old Testament. It says the people in Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they were, they, they were using the canon. They would hear what Paul said, but they went back and measured the truth claims from Paul against the canon, the measuring rod of truth, to see if what Paul said was true. They found out, of course, that he was speaking truth, and so many of them believed. So what are some ways, what are some different approaches to studying the Bible? Because it can be intimidating, can it? It can be tough. You know, you read some hard passages or... You're like, look at this thing. I mean, where do I, where do I begin? You hear different ideas. Or some of you, your Bible study method is this right here. You know, you just, all right, God, what do you have for me today? All right, Micah chapter one. You know, that's the way we do it. How do we approach this, right? Well, some different things. First method is something I call the sword method. And that's kind of cheesy, but it just helps me with directions. So I'll read a passage like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And the sword points up if I'm holding it up. So let, ask about God. Why do I learn about God? God in this passage. Well, here we learn that God breathes Scripture out. It's God breathes. He is behind the source of all Scripture. Secondly, also the handle points down. Mankind. What do I learn about mankind? What do I learn about me? Well, I'm learning that the Bible can rebuke me, can correct me, can instruct me, can train me, it equips me for every good work. That's a lot. And then you ask the question, so how does it apply for me? 
Here you have a lot of different ways you can talk through application. You can look at a passage, and I use what's called the speck, Matthew 7, Jesus gets a speck out of our eyes. So I use speck, it's an acrostic. S stands for is there any sin to confess? You know, if I read a passage and it deals with sin, maybe God convicts me of that, I need to confess that sin. Is there an example to follow? Or, I'm sorry, spec, at Nexus P. Promise, promise to claim. Is there a promise that I need to claim onto and hold onto? Is there an example to follow? Is there a, a command to obey? And is there knowledge to keep? So just a practical way to go through a passage. So that's the sword method. Another method or approach to Bible study is the character study method. It's gonna be really good. Uh, if you're really interested in a certain person in the Bible, whether it's Peter or Samson, uh, you know, or Ruth, you know, all the ladies like a good love story, whatever it may be, the character method. Well, first thing is pick, pick a character in the Bible, one you, you might think you might identify with. And then you will look up all the passages in the Bible about that person. Here you might need a concordance or you can just, again, online, you can Google, you can go to Bible Gateway, a lot of resources to look up and find every passage where a person is mentioned. And then make a timeline of their life. That can be helpful. Like if you're doing Moses, you learn that Moses is, he lives in the 1400s BC, grows up in Egypt. So you're kind of getting a, a world history view of, of all that's going on in the world at the time of Moses. And you kind of make that, that timeline, because you get a chronology of, of his life in, in your mind. What positive and negative character traits do you notice about Moses? Well, you look up Moses, you'll learn that God said he was the most humble guy. There was no one more humble than Moses. That's an incredible trait. But you also learn Moses does some bad things. What's, what's one sin Moses commits? What does he do? Murder. That's right. He committed murder. And God still used him? Absolutely. It's an incredible grace story there. So you look at them good, the bad, the ugly, and the Bible's got it all about all of its people, except Jesus. There's no ugly about Jesus or bad, right? He's perfect. Other than Jesus, the Bible is very authentic because it, it tells all the good stuff and the bad stuff about the people and the characters in history. So you can learn from that. And then ask, what lessons do I learn from, from their life and from their faith? And then the third is a topical study method. This is great, especially if you're kind of new to the Bible. This is a great place to start. Let's say there's an issue that you're curious about. You know, whether it's a political issue that's really a biblical issue like abortion or uh, what's the Bible say about that or what's the Bible say about homosexuality or what's the Bible say about um, marriage? What does the Bible say about gluttony or greed? You know, it's great to study these different topics. So how do you do that? Well, again, you start with choosing your topic. Just like with a character then, you want to look up every passage that's got that topic. Again, a concordance is a great tool or going to the Bible Gateway, just type in greed or greedy. It'll give you every verse in the Bible where that word is mentioned. It's an incredible resource you can kind of look at. And then what you want to do, you're going to take and compare the different passages about that topic and see if there's a common message about that topic. You'll kind of begin to glean what the sum of the Word of God says about that topic. And then you'll seek any application to your own life. But probably the most common Bible study method is the book study, where you actually just take a book of the Bible and you study that book. This is probably the more challenging way because it really involves all the other methods we've already talked about, but it's also the most rewarding. So it takes more time, it takes more commitment, but it's so worth it. And you might even find out that some of your favorite verses might not 
actually mean exactly what you thought they meant. For example, let's just do one together. How many of you ever read this verse before? Jeremiah 29, 11. Have you ever quoted it before? I know the plans I have for you. I memorized it in a different translation. But plans to prosper you, not to destroy you. It sounds great, you know. We see it's a lot of graduations and, and things like that. These are like key verses for kids to think about their future life and what they're going to do in their career and in their families or whatever. And that's a great verse. But that's not exactly how that applies. If you read the book of Jeremiah, if you're doing the book study on Jeremiah, what you find is when you come to this text that God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah and the people have just been captured. They've just been put into slavery. They've just been exiled out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been destroyed and they've been taken off to Babylon where they're going to serve for 70 years. So when God gives the promise to that generation, that generation knows they're never going to see the promises fulfilled of that promise. It's going to be the next future. It's going to be the future generations. That generation got that. We're going to exile the rest of our lives. We're not going to see Jerusalem as we knew it again in this lifetime. So it's a little bit different. Now, it's, it's great for us because we're seeing the fulfillment of this, right? The plans for welfare, not for disaster. The plans to give us a future and hope. That's what Jesus is all about, amen? He's all about a future and the hope we have in him. He is the fulfillment of this promise. But it's not, ex didn't, it, it's not simply about my career or about my future family here in the next few years. It's, the context, as you do the book study, gives you a fuller understanding of what the prophet Jeremiah is talking about. Does that make sense? So it's a little, you, get, you get a fuller understanding as you're doing the book study. And it gives you a deeper appreciation understanding of the Word of God. So how do we go through and do a book study? First, we make an outline of the book. That can be so much fun. I love that. Some people hate that part, but it's all good. Secondly, look for key words or phrases, words that's repeated. Like you're reading the book of Philippians, you're going to see the word joy mentioned so many times. You're reading Galatians, you're going to see the word free or freedom. You're like, hmm, so it's a common phrase it's used, which then leads you to identifying a main theme or key verses. Obviously, 2 Timothy 3.16 is a key verse in 2 Timothy, how God breathed the word is. And then you look for the main applications. You know, so you go through Philippians, it's about joy and contentment. So the applications would be, what can I take from this book to apply to my life to have more joy and more contentment in life? So those are some, just some ideas on how to study the word of God. Number four, whoops. Number four, there we go, is I memorize the Word of God. Memorize. That's, that's the index finger. Memorizing is so important. I love reading stories about missionaries and just other biographies. And, you know, the stories come out of, of the former Soviet Union. And there were some strong believers in Romania. And uh, Warren Brands was their name. And, and he would preach the gospel and his wife would support him. And he got arrested. He got taken off to one of the, the Soviet gulags in Siberia. And, of course, he couldn't take the Word of God with him there. He couldn't take the physical copy of the Bible with him. But he had spent so much time memorizing Scripture. He had so much Scripture already right here. He was able still to, to preach the Word and discuss the Word and teach the Word in prison to other inmates and eventually even prison guards and led them to Christ because he had the word of God stored up in him. And that's kind of what David says back in Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up. 
your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Folks, memorizing the word is not just for kids in Awana. It's for all of us. Because here's the thing. Yeah, we've, we've got copies of this. I mean, how many of you own more than two copies of a paper version of the Bible? Yeah. And then we've got this to boot with countless versions of it at our fingertips. But what if the day were to come where these aren't available to us? What are we going to do? That's why it's so important to store up the word of God in us. So we don't know what tomorrow holds. And then number five, I will meditate on the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. And I love this. The psalmist writes in Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So if you read that verse and you're kind of like me, you can be selfish at times, read a passage. I, sometimes I inadvertently start with, what do I get out of this? That's not where we should start. So what's God saying? But I like that phrase, he prospers. I mean, how many like that? Whatever he does, he prospers. We like that, right? He prospers. Well, then you backtrack it. So how am I going to prosper according to this passage? It's by meditating on the law of the Lord. And why do I meditate on the law of the Lord? Because it's my delight. Now, what is biblical meditation? When we think of meditation, what comes to our mind? You know, we might think of some Far Eastern stuff, you know, where they got to do the fingers like this and mm, and that's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is, is just, it's just focused thinking. You know, it's kind of like a cow, which I learned last uh, service has four stomachs. I, I thought I had two, they have four. I got corrected last service, it was great. It has four stomachs, you know, and they'll, a cow will eat some food, and this is going to gross you out if you're not familiar with cattle, but they'll eat some food, and then, you know, just a couple hours later, it'll bring some of that food back up, and it'll just chew on it some more. It's called chewing the cud. You ever heard of that term? Well, now you have. Right, so it's kind of gross, but it's also a decent picture of meditation. Meditation was like we read or study the Word of God, say, in the morning, but later in the day, we might be on our way to lunch meeting or whatever. Well, we bring that thought back to our mind, and we, and we just chew on it. We ponder it. We break it down, you know. God breathed, or it's useful. His Word is useful. You just think about different parts of the passage you've read. You just, you just think it through, and it's meaning, it's impact on you. That's biblical meditation. It's that focused thinking. But the key to all of this is delight. Here's where a revived person who's walking in the Spirit of God is different from someone who just studies the Bible academically. Because we can study the Bible academically and never be changed by it. Right? A lot of people like that. A lot of people that know the Bible here, but are never transformed by the Word of God here. That's the difference between someone who's revived with the Spirit of God is they actually have that delight, that yearning, that love. And I, I think this is where a lot of American Christians, where we can stumble here. Because we're used to reading, we're used to learning, we're a very educated culture. And it's so easy for us to look at the Bible the same way as we look at our history textbook. Or the same way we look at our science textbook. Or the same way we look at our, our math textbook and think it's another academic exercise but it is so much more than that so much more yes we should learn we should study the history of that but there's it's a personal encounter with God 
So I want to show you a video because this video captures delight. Because as Americans, I believe, as American Christians, we become so, what's the word, spoiled, so over used to that just the fact that we have this, and we forget how incredible it is that we do have this. We forget the privilege it is. People open up God's word every single, any moment we choose to. What a privilege. So this video is about, just didn't happen too long ago, but it was a people group in Papua New Guinea. And there's, a, there's several missionary organizations whose goal it is is to get the word of God into a printed form in a language of that people group. So like Wycliffe Bible Translators, it's their mission. So they'll have missionaries to go into unreached people groups who don't have the Bible in their language. And they'll spend several years learning the language. And they'll spend several more years translating the Bible into that language so that people have their own language. That's about a 20-year process. But then there's some, and you can find this hard to believe, but it's true. There's some people groups whose language is not even in a written form yet. So missionaries have to go in, spend several years learning the language, and then spend years developing a written language for that people group, teaching them how to read that language, and then translate the Bible into that language. It's like a 30-year process. Well, that process culminated just a few years ago with a certain people group in Papua New Guinea. What this video shows is the moment this people, this town, this, they received their first copy of the New Testament. Look at their delight in the Word of God and ask yourself, do I still get that delighted and excited about God's Word? So let's look at this video. Mm. Have you ever been that excited about the Word of God? I love what Jeremiah says. He says, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and thee, the joy of my heart. For I am called by your name, Lord God of hosts. Treasure the word of God, because it's the word of God that we get to know God. We get to know what it means that God is holy. We get to know what it means that we're sinners. We learn all about the gospel, how the very son of God, God in the flesh, comes to earth for us to live a sinless life that we could never live, but then voluntarily goes to the cross and becomes our sacrifice to satisfy the justice of God on our behalf. So that now we're free to receive the mercy, the grace of God, forgiveness from God, everlasting life, purpose, being born again into the family of God. How do we know all this? Because of the word of God. How do we know we're supposed to love one another as ourselves? Because of the Word of God. How do we know what marriages are supposed to look like? Where the husband and wife are submitting to one another and loving one another. Or the husband's called to love the wife as Christ loved the church. How do we know that? Because of the Word of God. How do we know what government's supposed to look like? How do we know how church is supposed to function? Because of the Word of God. How do you know what love truly is? Because the Word of God 
where it says, greater love has no one than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. Love is patient, love is kind. How do we know all this? The word of God. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God has plans and purpose for you? Because the word of God. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Ephesians 2, 10, for you, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works which he planned for us in advance. How do we know these things? Why are we here today? How do we know that there's heaven? How do we know that there's eternal life? How do we know that there's ultimate victory? Because of the word of God. How do we know what it is to follow Jesus, to live a life of serving him? The word of God. Where would we be without the word of God? We'd be lost, hopeless, helpless, and, and damned. But because of the word of God, we'd be saved, rescued, hope-filled, helpful, and live forever. Do you treasure the word of God? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving us your word and forgive us for being ungrateful. Forgive us for being apathetic. Forgive us for just letting ourselves forget how privileged we are to have your word to us, to be able to open your word any time of any day and encounter you, enjoy you, get to know you more and more, understand you more and your purposes, your ways. Lord, thank you. God, I just pray that here as we close this time, that Lord, you would just do a work in our hearts, not simply a, some kind of resolution to be more disciplined in reading the word, but God, I pray for something different. Lord, I pray that you would just fill us with your spirit and increase our hunger, increase our appetite for you, increase our desire for you, increase our delight in you. Because God, then the discipline part will be taken care of. Lord, I pray for those here and on listening online who may not know you yet, may not be in that relationship with you yet. And God, your gospel in your word brings salvation to them. I pray, Lord, that they would hear this loud and clear that, God, you love them. You, the holy, perfect God of the universe, loves them individually. You sent your son, Jesus, to die for them in their place because, God, we're all sinners and no good amount of works we can do will ever make up for our sin. But Jesus, you are perfect. You were the only sufficient sacrifice and you did that willingly so that every single one of us could be forgiven of our sins and have everlasting life in you and have purpose and direction now in this life. So if there's anyone listening, watching here in this room who's never received you, trusted in you as Lord and Savior, I pray that this is their moment. And we know this because of the word of God. So Lord, increase our delight, increase our faith, fill us with your spirit so we may live as revived people you call us to, so you can use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
We're going to go into a time of commitment. Our worship team is going to lead us. The altar is going to be open. Um, I'd love to pray with you. If you're so inclined, if you just want to come and pray to God at the altar for more delight. That's a great thing to pray this morning. God, help me to delight in you more. Help me to delight in your word more. Not to see my quiet time, my Bible study as some kind of obligation or duty or academic rigor. Lord, just the joy of being with you through your word. Pray that. Maybe you're here today or online and you need to give your life to Christ. You never trusted him as Lord and Savior. I'd love to pray with you and talk about that here. Personally, if online, just email me at info at canaanstl.org. love to pray with you. This is your time, though, to respond to what the Lord's laying on your heart. Let's all stand as we sing one last time about the greatness of God.